Are you trying to squeeze the starting solid food stuff into your already busy schedule? Well, I have an all-in-one done-for-you solution that's going to take the guesswork out of feeding your baby. My online program is called Baby Led Weaning with Katie Ferraro. It contains all of my baby led weaning training videos, the original 100 First Foods content library, plus a 100-day meal plan with recipes like the exact sequence of which foods to feed in which order. So if you want to stop trying to piece all this feeding stuff together on your own, I would be honored if you would join me inside of the program. You can get signed up at babyledweaning.co slash program. Checking in about food allergies and introducing allergenic foods. And have you done peanut with your baby yet? Well, intact nuts and thick globs of nut butters like peanut butter are choking hazards for babies, but we want to get that peanut protein into your baby early and often in order to help lower the risk of peanut allergy down the road. My absolute favorite way to introduce peanuts for babies is using the Puffworks Baby Peanut Puffs. So When you hear puffs, like you're probably like, oh, those starchy little puff things. Like, no, no, no. Not the little ones that earlier eaters can't pick up. Those kind of crappy puffs from the store that have added sugar and refined grains and lots of salt. Uh uh. The Puffworks baby peanut puffs have no added sugar. They have just a smidge of sodium for preservatives, and they are the perfect size for baby led weaning. They're about the size of your adult pinky finger. So, you can, baby can pick them up, self-feed them, but they're so soft that they dissolve in your baby's mouth so you can introduce these peanut puffs even before your baby has teeth. Puffworks also makes a baby almond puff for the safe introduction of a separate allergenic food category. That's tree nuts. And now, finally, Puffworks put out a combo case. So it's half baby peanut and half baby almond. So if you want to grab one case, then you can knock out two new allergenic foods. We do these on different days, though. These are just the no-stress, low-mess way to get peanut and tree nut out of the way. So you can get 15% off everything at puffworks.com when you use the affiliate discount code BLWPOD. That's a new code. It's BLWPOD. Use that sucker at checkout at puffworks.com and get peanut and tree nut safely out of the way. Kids develop tastes and they take repeated exposures to like different things. And that that is more true with bitter vegetables than it is with fruits. Early exposure to a variety of things can help develop the taste for those flavors. Hey there, I'm Katie Ferraro, registered dietitian, college nutrition professor, and mom of seven specializing in baby led weaning. Here on the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast, I help you strip out all of the noise and nonsense about feeding leaving you with the confidence and knowledge you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods using baby-led weaning. Hello and welcome to this episode. We're going to be talking about making data-driven feeding decisions for our baby. I am super excited about today's guest. It's Emily Oster. Emily is an economics professor at Brown University. She's a very well-known author in the parenting space. I would say, I would argue, at least me personally, she's the only economist I know. And I know that because of her work in the parenting space. She's written a number of books on parenting and pregnancy with her overarching goal is to create a world of more relaxed pregnant women and parents. So Emily uses and analyzes data to help clarify some of the questions that we as parents all wonder about. So things like, how long is it best to breastfeed? Or How damaging is long-term pacifier use? And of course, she addresses decisions about feeding your baby. So Emily authors a highly engaged sub-stack newsletter called Parent Data. It's a twice-weekly newsletter about data, parenting, and pregnancy. I'm so excited she's here to chat about that data stuff as it pertains to feeding our babies and baby-led weaning. So if you haven't already picked up on it, I'm a full-on Emily Oster fangirl. So 
getting to interview her and ask her some of these really specific questions about baby led weaning and infant feeding was really cool. I know she's the only interview I've ever done where the guest actually talks faster than me. We got a review for the podcast the other day and the reviewer said, Katie's podcast is the only one I don't have to listen to on 1.5x because she talks so fast. So Emily Oster talks even faster. And shameless plug, if you do like the podcast and you would like to leave a review, your written reviews really, really, really matter. I read every single one of them. So thank you. Some of you put your episode ideas in there, which I love. I get a lot of good episode ideas from the reviews, but also writing a written review helps this information get found by other parents. So if you enjoy the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast, please leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. And with no further ado, here is Data-Driven Feeding Decisions with Emily Oster, PhD. Thank you for having me. Okay, I've been a huge fan of your work for a while, but it was literally when I saw the cover of your book, Crib Sheet, that came out in 2019, it said, How to Calm Down About Milestones. And I was like, yes, like everyone freaks out about milestones. I need to read this book. And I love that you have the whole data-driven decision-making as parents and for us to learn from. Before we dive into the data-driven stuff, could you share a bit about your background and how you came to be known as the parent data decision person? Sure. So I'm an economist. That's my training. I have a PhD in economics and I was sort of like trucking along as an economics professor. I work on my academic work is about data and how we learn from data and about health. And then I got pregnant and my daughter is now 10, almost 11, but I got pregnant and I sort of started doing a lot of pregnancy research sort of with the lens of like, I'm a person who understands data and I want to dive into this data and understand what it says about my pregnancy. And I pretty rapidly got quite frustrated with the conventional pregnancy wisdom or the conventional pregnancy approaches. And I sort of started to build a little bit of, of my own kind of here is what happens when we really dive into data. And I dive into trying to understand the studies behind some of these recommendations. And ultimately the work that I did really in the service of my own pregnancy ended up in Expecting Better, which is my first book, which is a came out in 2013. Later, after a second kid, I wrote a second book and now I write a newsletter. And I so I've sort of turned like kind of those books into really a whole, I don't know, enterprise of trying to dive into data and translate data for people. And I love that. I, I think some of the best ideas in parenting are born out of necessity. And especially from a nutrition standpoint, when the answer is when in doubt, leave it out, it's like for real, for everything like this, this is as good as we can do. And I get it like to test drugs and stuff. I mean, there's a very, very short period of time where you will be pregnant. And so it's not really in the interest of lots of different industries to spend a ton of time studying what's actually safe or not safe in pregnancy. Yeah, I think that's right. But I mean, I think the sort of flip of that, that sometimes I find very frustrating is that this is a lot of people we're affecting. And sometimes, you know, we're talking about a deli sandwich and you can say, well, you know, what's the big deal? But sometimes we're talking about like, SSRIs. And then, you know, it's an antidepressant and you're like, well, actually that is kind of a big deal. And so our lack of information can be, I think, quite damaging. The deli meat one always kills me. Like it's heat the deli meat until steaming. Like, dude, that sounds so gross for like a cold deli sandwich. But then like certain people in certain parts of the country be like, no way, I totally eat like a hot bologna sandwich. Like, okay, cool. To each their own. But it is a little frustrating. I loved your book, Expecting Better, Why the Conventional Pregnancy Wisdom is Wrong and What You Really Need to Know. Then the second book, Crib Sheet. So that was a data-driven guide to better, more relaxed parenting from birth to preschool. And so for my audience here on the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast, they're interested in the feeding stuff. And I, I loved that chapter that was called Beyond the Boobs, Introducing Solid Food. You talk about Penelope and Finn in your book and you share personal stories and anecdotes on top of the data. So 
wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing with our listeners, what approach did you do with your kids for starting solid foods? And did you do anything different with your second kid once you realized, if you're like a lot of parents that like a lot of us overthink the solid food thing may have done that with the first? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm more than happy to share that. So with Penelope, I think we did like what the textbook you know, whatever is the textbook for this, like we did that. So it was like- Iron fortified rice cereal, spoon fed at four to five months of age. Absolutely. (laughs) And we had her, we took pictures. She was in a bumpo. You know, we made sure that we like documented that. Then we moved on to oatmeal. Then we moved on to the single source veggies in the jars. And we did three days between them to make sure that like she wasn't allergic to peas, even though later I learned no one's allergic to peas, fine. We made a little bit of our own, you know, no salt, right? And so we were like, just really, and we had these, palette of earth's best like baby food and we had this whole closet that was like coats and like palettes of of like different stage baby food and so you know that worked like sort of broadly fine we had a second kid and it was sort of different in two different ways one was like i could not like we didn't have the same kind of house and have a closet for the palette. like i just couldn't like just it couldn't take it with the palettes and i, I guess as we gave him some rice cereal at some point but like basically we just adopted a sort of you kind of eat what we eat. And when you are ready to eat the things that we eat, then you start eating those. And until then, like you sort of, we can like sit with you, we can pretend you're at the table, whatever it is, but we're not going to go into the the jarred foods. And I think that that it's interesting because I think part of what happened is my Finn is like my younger is, was like really into food and very, at a very young age, very interested in eating food and good at swallowing and all that kind of stuff. And so we actually like started eating sort of fairly normally quite early. And so it made that approach somewhat easier than it might've been for some other people. In 2016, I created the 100 First Foods approach to baby-led weaning. And it's a practical way to implement some of the data that you cite in Crib Sheet about the importance of diet diversity and the early development of flavor preferences. So regarding the introduction of solid foods, you touch a little bit in your books on the advice that a lot of parents hear from their pediatricians. And one of the big ones, which is to wait three to five days between foods. And this is still the party line to this day in some AAP publications. And I always like to point out, there's absolutely no data that supports that recommendation saying you have to do this or it's unsafe to go faster. We know that if babies are gonna have a reaction to food, a food allergy reaction, the majority of those reactions occur within minutes and up to no more than two hours following ingestion. So I love that you pointed out like common sense. If you plan to introduce all the foods to your kid before they're one, you're gonna have to speed up at some point. Exactly, so what do you do? And I mean, we know more than 90% of physicians in this country have never had a dedicated nutrition class. So when you go to your pediatrician and you ask them a question about feeding and they say, the AAP says we have to wait three to five days between foods, what do you do when they're getting advice that's not supported by data? How do you talk to your doctor about that? I mean, I think a piece of this, actually in some ways, a lot of what, what I think the goal is of both crib sheet and expecting better is to kind of bring, like sort of give people enough information that they can have a different conversation that, you know, you're not like, sometimes we come into those conversations, like, what do you think? And then they say, and they say something and sort of in that moment, you're like, okay, wait three to five days. And then you get home and you like calculate it. And you're like, but wait a minute, like my kid's never going to eat any foods. If I wait three to five days, like, what do you, you know, but then it's kind of too late. And so I think that learning something about this before and coming in and saying, okay, like we're going to start solid foods, but, you know, let's talk about this. And then, and I have some background or I've, you know, I've thought a little bit about this in advance. And then when if somebody says, you know, wait three to five days, I can say, you know, that doesn't like, can we talk a little bit more about whether that makes sense? And I, my guess is that in some reasonable share of those cases, your pediatrician will be like, yeah, that's kind of the general party line. But actually like, you know, if you're comfortable doing it, like there are some things you want to be a little careful about. There are some 
the small number of foods that are cause almost all the allergies. And so, you know, when you first give your kid strawberries or eggs or nuts, you want to like peanut butter, you want to be paying a little bit of attention, like being a little bit more cautious, not cautious, but conscious relative to when you first give them Brussels sprouts or something. But that's a different approach than, you know, wait three days. Or as you said, peas, like peas, yeah, technically a legume, but like really how many documented cases of like really? anaphylactic reaction from pea, pea intake? It's exactly. Very pea shock. Unusual. Pea shock. It's a thing. No, you say it though, and people will be like, but it could happen. Yes, it's not absolute zero, but is it a reason to wait five days after feeding your baby peas? And by the way, babies can't even pick up peas. So do peas when they're older, when they have their pincer grass. But I mean, we're talking about the allergenic food. Yeah, we have compelling data for peanut, pretty strong for egg, a little bit less for milk, that early introduction of these helps prevent food allergy. And for the rest of the big nine allergenic foods, it's a little bit like the Wild West out there as we wait for more data to come out. So as a practitioner, my advice always is, listen, we know that there's definitely no benefit to withholding the introduction of allergenic foods. And because we can do this safely at six months of age and beyond with food, you might as well get those other allergenic foods in there early and often too. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. If you've been thinking about giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's a convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online experience. All you do is just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can also switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. I used to think therapy was just for people who have experienced major trauma, but therapy can help you be at your best no matter what you're going through. So whether it's to learn new positive coping skills, set more realistic boundaries, or just show up as a better version of yourself, BetterHelp is here to help. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can help you get there and BetterHelp can help you. Visit betterhelp.com slash weaning today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash weaning and get 10% off your first month. What do you recommend when we're in this like holding pattern, especially regarding the other six allergenic foods? Not a lot of data for, but definitely no data against. What do you do for the introduction? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for me, sort of thinking about how this would work and looking at the data that we do have, you know, this data on peanuts in particular, but also on eggs and milk is really quite strong. You know, the reductions in peanut allergy from early introduction are enormous. They're enormously large. And so it kind of goes, the logic would suggest that that would extend to other allergens right? It's not like we haven't shown it. It hasn't been like shown in randomized trials, but it makes sense. It makes sense as something that would happen. And in the absence of evidence that it's problematic, I think that I would, you know, err towards, I think the Bayesian updater would say, do the other allergens also early. So you talked a lot about the LEAP trial in one of your books. I can't remember which one it was, but the LEAP trial, the learning early about peanut allergy and the like very good data that we have that early introduction of peanut can prevent peanut allergy. Did you actually talk to Gideon Lack? Like, did you interview him for the book? I did not. He's like, I'm on my dream list of interview guests. Yeah, I think that would be amazing. I don't do that much of that kind of interviewing because I tend to just, I mean, in that particular You can case, read like, the data. You can read the data. Like it's it. That's a, he's comparing means. It wasn't complicated paper. Although I think the story there is really amazing. The story's amazing, right? Like they cite Bomba, like an actual food brand in the paper. That never happens. Like that was really interesting. I just have this image of Gideon Lack, like basically coming up with that idea because he was like talking to his friends 
in Israel. And he was like, ah, I can't send my kid peanut butter. They were like, everybody here eats peanut butter at lunch. Like, I'm sure I've completely made this up. I'm sure Gideon like is not a person who like wanted to pack peanut butter and jelly, but like in my head, that's what happened. He wanted to give his kids peanut butter for school and his friend in Israel could. And he somehow like, that's if why you, we love and I love you that you're like, they're just comparing means. It's not a complicated paper. It's like, well, we'll link to the original leap study. Like it's pretty oh, no, no. involved. Like, <laughs> I mean, you want the summary, guys. I'm just saying that, like, reading the results wasn't complicated. Yeah, but also, it's like, bottom line, it's pretty obvious. Feed your baby's peanut at six months of age. It's protective against peanut allergy. So, Emily, I love your substack. I'm a relatively new subscriber, but I've read everything you wrote about baby-led weaning. You cite a lot of the practitioners and researchers that we've had on the podcast talking about things like the research behind baby-led weaning and why you don't have to wait three to five days between foods or how we don't know much about how much of the allergenic foods to feed, but feeding them is still a good idea. There's a lot of gray area, which I know is frustrating to data-driven parents. So curious what your bottom line recommendation is based on what's been published when it comes to doing baby-led weaning versus traditional parent-led spoon feeding. So I think that there's a kind of piece of this where people will say, you know, you have to do baby-led weaning or your kid is going to be fat. And, you know, baby-led weaning is the way to, is like sort of the magic. It's going to make your kid a superhero. And I think that, you know, we don't have strong data that suggests that. But I think on the flip side, there's absolutely nothing that would suggest that this is something you, that you shouldn't do. And I think for a lot of families, and I guess this gets a sign of a broader point about, about that I make in Crib Sheet, which is that like a lot of how you should be thinking about what works for you in these choices where we don't have a recommendation that says you must do this is you should think about what works for you. You should sort of think about what works for the family in general. The thing that draws me, I will be totally frank, to baby-led weaning is that it is easy. Yeah, you call it like the lazy parent approach. And like, right. if I said that, people would slaughter me. But like, I'm not calling you lazy. I'm calling myself lazy. And that's what appealed to me with seven kids. Like, oh my God, um, <laughs> that's a lot of kids. I kind of cheated though. I had a set of quadruplets and a set of twins. So I only had three pregnancies and got seven kids out of it. But still, wow. there's a lot of babies to feed. Like, I'm not going to shove food down their mouth if there's no one here to help me. They need to learn how to feed themselves. Yeah, I think also for me, actually, one of the big considerations and is like, I care a lot about being able to, about sort of like sitting as a family at meals. That's like a big piece, not, it's not a thing for everybody, but for me, for our family, that that's a really important part of our kind of family routine and, and how we connect. And actually the earlier we could have the baby involved in that, you know, like real, like sort of sitting at the table, kind of eating from a tray, like the rest of us were doing, that was worth it, a huge amount. And I think that that's um, that kind of like, getting to a place of normalcy for a family meal, if that's a direction that you want to go, I think this is pretty valuable for doing that. And not to like cite you directly from your book, but I like your approach saying, if you want to try baby led weaning, there's nothing in the evidence to say it's a bad idea. And if you do not, there's nothing compelling to say you should go out and do it. So again, the onus is on you as the parent then to make the decision. But I like that you put it out there like, hey, nothing super good about it or proven to you have to do it this way. Also nothing as far as a drawback goes if it works for you. And I think a lot of it is waiting until the right time, which is my next question. This idea of starting solid foods, and unfortunately in this country, the American Academy of Pediatrics still has published things that say start solid foods at four to six months. That is infuriating huge for parents. Range. Yes, because in the lifespan of an infant, it's such too big. And developmentally, the changes that take place from four to six months are monumental with regards to a baby being preparing themselves to safely swallow something besides breast milk or formula. So your writings in crib sheet, you said, yes, technically, you know, you could, you didn't use these words, but like you could shove a spoon of food into a four month old mouth, but just because you can do something doesn't mean we should. And from a nutrition standpoint, as a dietitian, we know, listen, breast milk and or formula is sufficient 
to meet baby's needs up till six months of age, isn't that cause enough to advise parents not to start solid foods prior to six months of age? And why do doctors still do it then? I think that that is enough to recommend. I'm not sure. I think this is one of these things where because you know, we don't have like some randomized trial that says there's an exact right age to do this. I think what has happened is that this has gotten into a, a place where it's like somehow earlier is better. Like swallowing food is a milestone that you need to achieve. It's like my baby can read at one. Oh, well, guess what? My baby can eat at three months. Like right. It's like, no, that's not, that's not a thing. So I think you're, you're right that it's not, that that messaging is not especially helpful. And I think it leads a lot of people actually to a a sort of kind of anxiety because, you know, your kid is four months and one day you plop them down in their bumpo. They don't have a lot of good core control. You stuff some food in their mouth. They probably can't like there's a good chance. They're not going to, they're not going to swallow it. Yeah. And then people are going to feel anxious. Like, oh, my baby's broken. Was supposed to take. Or yeah, like grandma's whispering in there. You're like that baby's four months old. You've never had a baby before. Does a baby start eating solid food at four months of age? Well, the doctor says four to six months. Well, your baby can't even sit up on their own. If you're slumped over, how do you think they can learn to swallow something besides breast milk or formula? So like, it's literally, it's kind of my soapbox. And like, my goal is to go to every single medical school because I think there's someone at medical school, like literally whispering in the pediatric medical students' ears, like start solid foods at four months of age. Like, who's teaching you guys this? And I want to go around and teach them that like, nutritionally, it's not needed. Like, let your baby be a baby and do things in their due time. But also we know waiting too long to start solid foods leads to increased rates of picky eating and and other issues as well. So there's not an exact day where every baby's ready because all babies are different, but four to six months, like we can both agree, like that's infuriating. That's too long. I agree. And I think there's also, we could message to people much in a much more meaningful way, like that your baby can sit, like that there's variation that you may be able to learn something about. Because even some babies, we do six months plus one week, not sitting. Six months plus two weeks, not sitting. Six months plus three weeks, boom, that baby's sitting up, reaching for food, grabbing food. Like that's still a six month baby. And it was a six month baby three weeks ago, but it's a remarkably different baby with regards to his readiness to eat. Exactly. And I think we could sort of train people better to look for those cues rather than sort of telling them there's some arbitrary time that you like you pick as opposed to like your baby picks. So when parents say, Katie, convince me of the benefits of baby led weaning, one of the potential upsides is increased potential for diet diversity and food acceptance down the road. And I love that in Crib Sheet, you cite Leanne Birch's study from 2017 that showed babies who consume a wide variety of fruits and vegetables at nine months of age we're also more likely to eat a varied diet with vegetables at age six. Now, is there any causation there or impetus for us to keep like on the track with offering vegetables, even when it's like way easier to do fruits for babies? Yeah, so it's, I'm so of two minds about this. Um, so I can tell you. So first of all, that kind of correlation, it's very hard to think that that's causal because it's like like the people, what you're offering, the people who offer their baby vegetables at nine months are also offering their vegetables at six, right? And so- like, you know, is that about the parents? Is that about the kids? It's a little complicated. What we do know is that kids develop tastes and they take repeated exposures to like different things. And that that is more true with bitter vegetables than it is with fruits, right? So it's a lot easier to like a pear than it is to like a Brussels sprout. But if you have more exposure to Brussels sprouts, you are more likely to like them. And we know from experiments with toddlers that if you like introduce things and you introduce them in a way that kids like, then like they're more likely to sort of develop the taste for those flavors. So on the one hand, some of that's correlation. On the other hand, there's a lot of reason to think just from the the sort of almost the biology of how taste developed that sort of early exposure to a variety of things causes kids to can help develop the taste for those flavors. 
Can we talk about supplements for babies and in particular vitamin D drops and iron? I know personally, I always forgot to do those. This is purely anecdotal, but I have seven kids who do not have rickets. So I'm feeling like less bad about it these days. But when it comes to supplements, vitamin D and iron for breastfeeding moms, are these imperative or is there a little bit of wiggle room? So I think, you know, in general, if you live in a cold place without a lot of sun, your kids cover, you know, like it's good to have some vitamin D for breastfed infants. I think we get into a place where people are like, oh, if you forget one day, like, you know, you're going to develop rickets. It's not really the way it, that's not really the way it works. And so I think that, you know, people probably overstate how important this is. It is nevertheless, perhaps a, you know, good idea to try to remember it on, on occasion. Iron sort of similarly, it kind of depends on like, that's going to depend more on the other aspects of, you know, your diet and how much iron there is in breast milk. And, and then ultimately once they're eating some food, how much iron they're getting in their, in their food. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than, Hey, <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So I just finished your newest book, The Family Firm, A Data-Driven Guide to Better Decision-Making in the Early School Years. So I have seven kids age seven and under, and I want you to know, I know this is not your intention, but your book like officially scared the crap out of me about what's to come. Like mainly the phone stuff, but what really caught me off guard, you mentioned like at the very beginning that the quote unquote big kids stuff makes early parenting worries seem incredibly tractable. So as an economist, but also a parent who you've seen now, both the early and the school age big kids stuff, do you think the things that parents worry about are harder to deal with in a data-driven way early in the lifespan, like birth and toddlerhood, or later, like in school age? So I think that there's two things that are more complicated about the older kids. One is that the data is just not as good. So, you know, things like, like we talked about, like the data on, on baby-led weaning is incomplete and all and that kind of thing. But, you know, there are places in toddlerhood where we have good data. And even in places where we don't, I think we often have some data. And then we're sort of, we can conclude something like we don't have strong evidence in either direction. And that in and of itself is fairly comforting. When you get into some of these older kid questions, like what's the right school or, you know, how much extracurricular do they need? Or like, should I worry about the screen time and social media? There's not any good data that would help us. And it feels like probably it is important, like probably social media, like whether my kid has Instagram, it seems like that could be like really bad or really good, but I have no idea. Whereas with something like baby led weaning, it's like, I don't have a great idea, but probably it is sort of a small differences in either in either direction or what's the right age for potty training. They all end up pooping in the potty like eventually. And eating food. Like for millennia, we've been doing this, but they've only had phones for like a decade. Right. So I think that's what's hard about the older kids. Okay. I am a big organization buff, big spreadsheet person. I really want to know more about your brother that you said in the book has four kids and uses a Google sheet for figuring out their summer camps. But I've been dying to ask you, do you really use Asana for family tasks? Yeah. There were some very big projects when our kids were little that we used it for a lot. Like what? Like, summer camps? Like what's a big project? I don't know. Like house renovations. Okay. So house renovations, um, nanny searches, like babysitter searches. That was like a big time thing. Like the interview process. Yeah. The interview process, sort of tracking applications. So wait, you assign your husband tasks and then he checks them off or is it like vice versa? You can assign each other stuff. You can say everyone can assign a task. Oh my God. I'm going to think about doing it. I think in the last few years, maybe as the kids have aged, we've moved much more towards like the Google suite. Okay. Things. So we do a lot of like, there's a lot of Google Docs. So it's probably because our 
the things that have come up are less like task assigning and more just like we need documentation. Like we, we have so many checklists. My husband has like a whole complicated checklist, like seasonal school checklists that he like prints out and puts up <sighs> in different places. My husband doesn't even know what school our kids go to. He has told him <laughs> to take a lunch to school the other day. Someone forgot it. He didn't know what grade they were in. And it was like, oh my God. But okay. So my husband can't like, do lunches. I will say like, you know, it's like you kind of get to these things where like you're like, my husband cannot pack the lunches. I don't know. He's just like a mental block about it. Okay, well, moving to project management for family tasks. What is the deal with the Paprika meal planning app? You seem to mention a lot. I've never heard anyone talk about it, but do you like really do a week's worth of dinner ideas in 20 minutes? Yeah, Paprika is such a good menu. It's so good. And so it it like stores the recipes. And so I do, I sort of look at the week and then I scroll through the recipes and I think about, you know, yeah, what we're going to have. And I just like plug them in. It's so great. Okay, it's called Paprika, right? Yeah. Okay, we'll link to it on the show notes because- It's good, it's really good. I'm like, oh, meal planning app, I kind of ignore those. But then you mentioned a whole week's worth of dinner ideas in 20 minutes. I was like, well, that sounds efficient. Yeah, I think the big thing is it's like a little bit of investment upfront in sort of what are the things you typically have. But actually it has like very good, I think it's made us try more things because it like, you can like link into like the Times Cooking app in the browser in the thing. And I'll like, and then it like adds the recipes automatically. And then if I have them when I'm meal planning, I'm like, oh, maybe we'll try that. The only cooking thing I've ever paid for is New York Times Cooking app. It's fabulous. To close out the interview, I want to thank you, an economist, for pointing out what every dietitian already knows, quote, nutrition science is notoriously bad. For (laughs) parents who are really interested in being data-driven, Any final tips for dealing with some of like infant and early child feeding choices for which we do not have hard and fast data on? And I know you always tell people like the data is not going to make the decision for you, but any summary thoughts? I think what I would say is like that you have some role in shaping the way that you interact with your kids on food and on, on meals. And that it's worth thinking a little bit carefully about kind of what are you trying to craft and not that you can control what they eat. You cannot control what they eat, but you can control kind of how the meal goes and what is the scaffolding you have around interactions with meals and that being deliberate about that has some value. So if you're going to want to have family meals, if you're going to want to have some kind of rules about food, thinking a little bit about those in the kind of broad sense, not just in the in the moment when you wish your kid would sit down a little more quietly, it has some real value. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to do this interview for our audience. I'm a huge fan. I can't thank you enough. Uh, But tell the people, where can they go to learn more about and get more Emily Oster in their life? So you can look for my books, but uh, the easiest place to find me is Parent Data on Substack, which is my newsletter, or I'm Prof. Emily Oster on Instagram. And I will link to all of Emily's resources, including her three different books that we mentioned in today's episode on the show notes for this episode, which you can find at blwpodcast.com. Emily, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Emily Oster. It's always a little nerve wracking. Like when you meet someone who you think you like, like, I'm like, oh, I totally know her because I read everything she writes. I don't know her. I'm like, what if she's not as nice in real life as she appears to be? Super nice in real life, very down to earth. And also, no offense to other economists, but like I would argue that there are not a lot of economists out there who can really, really connect with parents in the way that she does. So I am going to link up all of Emily Oster's resources in the show notes for this episode, which you guys can find at blwpodcast.com forward slash 204. And I just want to point out that we normally have credentialed feeding experts on the podcast in the guest interviews. Emily Oster is not claiming to be a feeding expert. She is an economist who helps parents decipher data. And all of the data, because I've read, i read every single word that she's ever written about baby led weaning, all of the citations, she nailed the right ones. She's got everything appropriately cited with regards to the baby led weaning research and data that's out there. And we've actually had a lot of the different researchers that 
she is citing in her work. They've been on the podcast explaining the research. So I just want to lay that out there that she's not claiming to be a feeding expert, but rather an economist who helps parents interpret data. She's got a fair amount of feeding stuff in her books, but also a lot of other information beyond feeding. And I like looking down the road to like, ooh, what are the next things that my kids are going to be encountering? And then like, can I talk to people who've already been through it? So like, maybe they can cut to the chase and tell me what to pay attention to. And apparently it's cell phones. So let's be grateful that we don't have to worry about feeding babies right now. And for those of you who are dealing with cell phones, if you have any tips for me, my oldest is only seven. So I'm hoping it's still a while away, but I did really enjoy her newest book, Family Firm, because it was a little bit about like bigger kid stuff. But if you're looking for the Emily Oster book, that's kind of about infant to babyhood, toddlerhood stuff, that's in her book called Crib Sheet. Again, I'll link everything up, show notes for this episode at blwpodcast.com forward slash 204. Thanks for listening. 